Section 8 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator Unknown. Section 8. Parts 81 through 91. 81. But we must not conclude that society has no right to punish. If the actions of men are necessary, if men are not free, by what right does society punish criminals? Is it not very unjust to chastise beings who could not act otherwise than they have done? If the wicked act necessarily according to the impulses of their evil nature, society, in punishing them, acts necessarily by the desire of self-preservation. Certain objects necessarily produce in us the sensation of pain. Our nature then forces us against them and avert them from us. A tiger, pressed by hunger, springs upon the man whom he wishes to devour. But this man is not master of his fear and necessarily seeks means to destroy the tiger. 82. Refutiation of the arguments in favor of free will. If everything be necessary, the errors, opinions, and ideas of men are fatal, and if so, how or why should we attempt to reform them? The errors of men are necessary consequences of ignorance. Their ignorance, prejudice, and credulity are necessary consequences of their experience, negligence, and want of reflection in the same manner as delirium or lethargy are necessary effects of certain diseases. Truth, experience, reflection, and reason are remedies calculated to cure ignorance, fanaticism, and follies. But, you will ask, why does not truth produce this effect upon many disordered minds? It is because some diseases resist all remedies because it is impossible to cure obstinate patients who refuse the remedies presented to them, because the interest of some men and the folly of others necessarily oppose the admission of truth. A cause produces its effect only when its action is not interrupted by stronger causes, which then weakens or render useless the action of the former. It is impossible that the best argument should be adopted by men who are interested in error, prejudiced in its favor, and who decline all reflection, but truth must necessarily undeceive honest minds who seek her sincerity. Truth is a cause. It necessarily produces its effects when its impulse is not intercepted by causes which suspend its effects. 83. REFUDIATION OF THE ARGUMENTS IN FAVOR OF FREE WILL To deprive man of his free will, it is said, makes him a mere machine, an automaton. Without liberty he will no longer have either merit or virtue. What is merit in man? It is a manner of acting which renders him estimable in the eyes of his fellow beings. What is virtue? It is a disposition which inclines us to do good to others. What can there be contemptible in machines or automatons capable of producing effects so desirable? 
Marcus Aurelius was useful to the vast Roman Empire. By what rights would a machine despise a machine whose springs facilitate its action? Good men are springs which second society in its tendency to happiness. The wicked are ill-formed springs which disturb the order, progress, and harmony of society. If, for its own utility, society cherishes and rewards the good, it also harasses and destroys the wicked as useless or hurtful. 84. God, if there were a God, would not be free. The world is a necessary agent. All the beings that compose it are united to each other, and cannot act otherwise than they do, so long as they are moved by the same causes and endued with the same properties. When they lose properties, they will necessarily act in a different way. God himself, admitting his existence, cannot be considered a free agent. If there existed a God, his manner of acting would necessarily be determined by the properties inherent in his nature. Nothing would be capable of arresting or altering his will. This being granted, neither our actions, prayers, nor sacrifices could suspend or change his invariable conduct and immutable designs. Whence we are forced to infer that all religion would be useless. 85. According to theology, man is not free a single instant. Were not divines in perpetual contradiction with themselves, they would see that according to their hypotheses, man cannot be reputed free an instant. Do they not suppose man continually dependent on his God? Are we free when we cannot exist and be preserved without God, and when we cease to exist at the pleasure of his supreme will? If God has made man out of nothing, if his preservation is a continued creation, if God cannot, an instant, lose sight of his creature, if whatever happens to him is an effect of the divine will, if man can do nothing of himself, if all the events which he experiences are effects of the divine decrees, if he does no good without grace from on high, how can they maintain that a man enjoys a moment's liberty? If God did not preserve him in the moment of sin, how could man sin? If God then preserves him, God forces him to exist, that he may sin. 86. There is no evil and no sin, but must be attributed to God. The divinity is frequently compared to a king, whose revolted subjects are the greater part of mankind, and it is said he has a right to reward the subjects who remain faithful to him and to punish the rebellious. This comparison is not just in any of its parts. God presides over a machine, every spring of which he has created. These springs act agreeable to the manner in which God has formed them. He ought to impute it to his own unskillfulness if these springs do not contribute to the harmony of the machine into which it was his will to insert them. God is a created king who has created to himself subjects of every description, 
who has formed them according to his own pleasure, whose will can never find resistance. If God has rebellious subjects in his empire, it is because God has resolved to have rebellious subjects. If the sins of men disturb the order of the world, it is because it is the will of God that this order should be disturbed. Nobody dares to call in question the divine justice, yet under the government of a just God we see nothing but acts of injustice and violence. Force decides the fate of nations, equity seems banished from the earth, a few men sport unpunished with the peace, property, liberty, and life of others. All is disorder in a world governed by a God who is said to be infinitely displeased with disorder. 87. The prayers prove dissatisfaction of the divine will. Although men are forever admiring the wisdom, goodness, justice, and beautiful order of providence, they are in reality never satisfied with it. Do not the prayers continually addressed to heaven, show that men are by no means satisfied with the divine dispensations? To pray to God for a favor shows diffidence of his watchful care. To pray to him to avert or put an end to an evil is to endeavor to obstruct the course of his justice. To implore the assistance of God in our calamities is to address the author himself of these calamities, to represent to him that he ought for our sake to rectify his plan, which does not accord with our interest. The optimist, or he who maintains that all is well, and who incessantly cries that we live in the best world possible, to be consistent should never pray. Neither ought he to expect another world where man will be happier. Can there be a better world than the best world possible? Some theologians have treated the optimists as impious for having intimated that God could not produce a better world than that in which we live. According to these doctors, it is to limit the power of God and to offer him insult. But do not these divines see that it shows much less indignity to God to assert that he has done his best in producing this world than to say that being able to produce a better, he has had malice enough to produce a very bad one? If the optimist, by his system, detracts from the divine power, the theologian who treats him as a blasphemer is himself a blasphemer, who offends the goodness of God in espousing the cause of his omnipotence. 88 absurd to imagine repair of misfortune in another world. When we complain of the evils of which our world is the theater, we are referred to the other world, where, it is said, God will make preparation for all the iniquity and misery which, for a time, he permits here below. But if God, suffering his eternal justice to remain at rest for a long time, could consent to evil during the whole continuance of our present world, what assurance have we that during the continuance of another world divine justice will not, in like manner, sleep over the misery of its inhabitants? 
the divines console us for our sufferings by saying that God is patient, and that his justice, though often slow, is not the less sure. But do they not see that patience is incompatible with a just, immutable, and omnipotent being? Can God then permit injustice even for an instant? To temporize with a known evil announces either weakness, uncertainty, or collusion. To tolerate evil, when one has power to prevent it, is to consent to the commission of evil. 89. Theology justifies the evil permitted by its God. Divines everywhere exclaim that God is infinitely just, but that his justice is not the justice of man. Of what kind or nature, then, is this divine justice? What idea can I form of a justice which so often resembles injustice? Is it not to confound all ideas of just and unjust to say that what is equitable in God is iniquitous in his creatures? How can we receive for our model a being whose divine perfections are precisely the reverse of human? God, it is said, is sovereign arbiter of our destinies. His supreme power, which nothing can limit, justly permits him to do with the works of his own hands according to his good pleasure. A worm, like a man, has no right even to complain. This arrogant style is evidently borrowed from the language used by the ministers of tyrants when they stop the mouths of those who suffer from their violences. It cannot then be the language of the ministers of a god whose equity is highly extolled. It is not made to be imposed upon a being who reasons. Ministers of a just god, I will inform you, then, that the greatest power cannot confer upon your God himself the right of being unjust even to the vilest of his creatures. A despot is not a God. A God who arrogates to himself the right of doing evil is a tyrant. A tyrant is not a model for men. He must be an object execrable to their eyes. Is it not indeed strange that in order to justify the divinity they make him every moment the most unjust of beings? As soon as we complain of his conduct, they think to silence us by alleging that God is master, which signifies that God, being the strongest, is not bound by ordinary rules. But the right of the strongest is the violation of all rights. It seems right only to the eyes of a savage conqueror who, in the heat of his fury, imagines that he may do whatever he pleases with the unfortunate victims whom he has conquered. This barbarous right can appear legitimate only to slaves blind enough to believe that everything is lawful to tyrants whom they feel too weak to resist. In the greatest calamities, do not devout persons through a ridiculous simplicity, or rather a sensible contradiction in terms, exclaim that the Almighty is master? Thus, inconsistent reasoners believe that the Almighty, a being one of whose first attributes is goodness, 
sends you pestilence, war, and famine. You believe that the Almighty, this good being, has the will and right to inflict the greatest evils you can bear. Cease, at least, to call your God good when he does you evil. Say not that he is just, say that he is the strongest, and that it is impossible for you to ward off the blows of his caprice. God, say you, chastises only for our good. But what real good can result to a people from being exterminated by the plague, ravaged by wars, corrupted by the examples of perverse rulers, continually crushed under the iron scepter of a succession of merciless tyrants, annihilated by the scourges of a bad government whose destructive effects are often felt for ages? If chastisements are good, then they cannot have too much of a good thing. The eyes of faith must be strange eyes, if with them they see advantages in the most dreadful calamities, in the vices and follies with which our species are afflicted. 90. Jehovah exterminations prove an unjust and barbarous God. What strange ideas of divine justice must Christians have who are taught to believe that their God, in view of reconciling to himself the human race, guilty, though unconscious, of the sin of their fathers, has put to death his own son, who is innocent and incapable of sinning? What should we say of a king whose subjects should revolt, and who, to appease himself, should find no other expedient than to put to death the heir of his crown, who had not participated in the general rebellion? It is, the Christian will say, through goodness to his subjects, unable of themselves to satisfy divine justice, that God has consented to the cruel death of his son. But the goodness of a father to strangers does not give him the right of being unjust and barbarous to his own son. All the qualities which theology ascribes to God reciprocally destroy one another. The exercise of one of his perfections is always at the expense of the exercise of another. Has the Jew more rational ideas of divine justice than the Christian? The pride of a king kindles the anger of heaven. Jehovah causes the pestilence to descend upon his innocent people. Seventy thousand subjects are exterminated to expiate the fault of a monarch whom the goodness of God resolved to spare. 91. Is God a generous, equitable, and tender father? Notwithstanding the various acts of injustice, with which all religions delight to blacken the divinity, men cannot consent to accuse him of iniquity. They fear that, like the tyrants of this world, truth will offend him and redouble upon them the weight of his malice and tyranny. They hearken, therefore, to their priests, who tell them that their God is a tender father, that this God is an equitable monarch, whose object in this world is to assure himself of the love, obedience, and respect of his subjects, who gives them liberty of acting only to afford them an opportunity of meriting his favors, 
and of acquiring an eternal happiness which he does not owe them. By what signs can men discover the tenderness of a father who has given life to the greater part of his children merely to drag out upon the earth a painful, restless, bitter existence? Is there a more unfortunate present than that pretended liberty which, we are told, men are very liable to abuse and thereby to incur eternal misery? End of section 8 Recording by Roger Moline.